All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Brazen and unusual. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 193 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and rock and roll as I am, I spent Saturday night listening to 90s rave classics and making a paper T-Rex. Yeah, more information (laughs) necessary. On which bit, the 90s rave classics or the paper T-Rex? Have you got the T-Rex to hand? I'd quite like to see it. It's not finished yet, but the jaws are very much done. It's one of those paper trophies. Don't kill them, glue them. Okay, I thought it might just be that you were very, very bad at origami. (laughs) (laughs) It was supposed to be a swan. (laughs) I thought you might just be really good at origami. Like, how does one make an origami T-Rex? That's exciting sounding. I can't answer that, though, Jen, because I'm not very good at origami. The only thing I can make in origami is those kind of teenage girl... Pick a number, pick a colour. Oh, you're pretty. Yeah, me too. Love those, though. Still make them sometimes. Is there a word for them? There is a word for them. Bullying? That's how they were used on me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I wonder what 15-year-old me would make of the fact that I do now spend my Saturday mornings with Paul McGann, (laughs) but he's presenting a history podcast, and I'm cleaning the gook out of the washing machine drawer. Sounds like domestic bliss, Hannah. (laughs) Yeah. Which McGann is that one? With nail. Well, he's I. Is he the one off Lufa? Yes. Yeah. He's quite handsome, actually, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was about 15 and completely, you know, obsessed with, with nail and I, yes. Yeah. I did dream that one day 
that's how we'd spend our Saturdays. It's just he'd actually be in the room with me rather than telling me stories about Idi Amin, which was what was happening this weekend. <laughs> Romance. The new show, Dunleavy and I, they go on holiday on purpose because that's how old they are now. <laughs> yeah. Mickey, you terrible cunt. It's true. I've been waiting for that for the past seven years, but she's finally said it out loud. I'm Jen Offord, and I have a cold sore so big that I look like an extra from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And yeah, I can't even see it. It's massive. You're welcome. Uh, And if you're listening to this on Wednesday, yesterday was Pancake Day. So if you re-watch the video that will inevitably do the rounds of it's Pancake Day, it's Pancake Day, it's Pancake Day. From Marion and Exactly rabies that's your visual reference that's that's what i look like i think rabies as a visual reference didn't need the pancake day stuff to be honest coming up i talked to journalist writer and first lady of iceland eliza reed about her new book secrets of the sprackar in Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to Vicky Gosling, Chief Exec of GB Snowsport, about disappointing Winter Olympics, but why there's hope for the future. And misunderstood, a few missteps or a full-on mistake. In Rated or Dated, we come in peace to talk Tim Burton's Mars Attacks. But first, bombs, billionaires and bears. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q-Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. I won't lie to you. Things don't look great. So, here we are, living in a world where Germany's just promised to spend a historic amount of money on military equipment, and we're all cheering. Hmm. A world where you want teenagers to be able to make Molotov cocktails and grandfathers to be given guns. There's no point even trying to state where things stand, because it's Monday and life is moving too fast. At the last count, 8 million people were on the move in the Ukraine and half a million had crossed the border into a neighbouring country, a quarter of a million into Poland alone. What we can say is that whatever the world looks like when you are listening to this, one fact that will remain is that Ukraine's desire to remain Ukraine has been pretty fucking awe-inspiring. Makes a girl hope, really, really hope, that this turns out to be Putin's Vietnam. Mm. Can we make anything of the fact that Ukraine has withstood for as long as it has? I genuinely don't know. But Putin has achieved one of his aims, and that is that the whole world is looking at one man and marvelling at his strength. It's just not him. (laughs) Vladimir Zelensky, I mean, what is there to say? At the weekend, Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson told reporters that EU leaders had spoken with Zelensky in a video call. She added that when it was time to say goodbye to the Ukrainian president, it was clear that they might never see him again. Putin wants him gone. And you can see why. He's like Henry V's St Crispin Day speech in human form. But he's not just blessed with the old school leadership style, and you'll forgive my fangirling, but remember how painfully short of inspirational leadership this country has been in the last, I don't know, how long have I been alive? But Zelensky has also mastered social media, talking not to leaders, but to the people of Russia, of Belarus and of the rest of Europe. And talking of reaching the people of Russia, Ukraine had an assist this week from Anonymous, who claimed credit for hacking the Russian Ministry of Defence database and were believed to have hacked multiple state TV channels to show pro-Ukraine content. Jen, I believe you have news on some other interventions from the world of sport. 
I do. You know, much like the rest of the world, there was widespread condemnation of Putin's actions and an almost unified front in response. Europe's governing body for football, UEFA, took quick, decisive action last week, announcing that the Champions League final, which had been due to take place in St. Petersburg at the Gazprom Arena in May, would be moved to an alternative venue. And after initially stating that it would monitor the situation, Formula One announced it would cancel the Russian Grand Prix, which isn't actually even due to take place until September. So that is, you know, that's Mm. kind of depressing at the same time as being swift. pretty decisive. I can't imagine a circumstance where anybody's going to be any more friendly with Russia this year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to, I think the repercussions will be long, right? Yeah, about a generation, I reckon. Anyway, the International Ski Federation also cancelled competitions in Russia and many other events across the entire sporting calendar were also moved or cancelled. There were incredible scenes at the weekend from across football, in particular at West Ham on Sunday, and it's not often you'll hear me speaking highly of West Ham, where the club's players warmed up all wearing number seven shirts in tribute to Ukrainian player Andrei Yarmolenko, who's been given time off as the conflict unfolds. Also, Goodison Park on Saturday, where Ukrainian players from the opposing sides of Manchester City and Everton, Alexander Zinchenko and Vitaly Mykolenko embraced at the beginning of the match. Chelsea's Russian billionaire owner, Roman Abramovich, also announced on Saturday that he would hand over stewardship of the club to the trustees of Chelsea's charitable foundation. Did you see the Russian tennis player? Dan- Daniel Medvedev or Andrei Rublev? The dark-haired one who wrote No War Please on the camera. Oh, that's Rublev, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what? I don't think I did, actually. He's brave. Um, Daniel Mm. Medvedev is also Russian, and he has literally become the world number one tennis player today. And he was, certainly last week, playing in what looked to me the colours of Russia. Um, I don't know if that will... Well, we'll see how that plays out. A couple of other less talked about punishments for Russia. It's been banned from Eurovision and from Pornhub. <laughs> Both of which sound like great setups for jokes, but I will forgo that pleasure and just say, well done, Eurovision organisers. Well done, Pornhub. You know, words that I doubt I will ever <laughs> say again on this podcast. Going back to saying about what's brave, and that tennis player certainly is. Here's another bravery that cannot go unpraised, and that's the tens of thousands of Russians who already know what's what and are out on the street protesting Putin's actions. It shouldn't require bravery to tell your leaders that you think they are wrong. This is the thing as well. Like, obviously, the worst things, you know, the worst thing at the moment, obviously, is to be Ukrainian. Let me be clear that that is what I mean. But I think the other thing, you know, I, I think this is, awful awful long term for the people of russia as well like Mm -hmm. i think the consequences will be terrible for the people of russia and you know that is also very sad i think yep there are no winners no there are no winners well meanwhile as the uk government vowed not to turn its back on the people of ukraine it was heavily criticized for its stance on refugees fleeing the country seeking to enter the uk while the eu said that it would accept ukrainian refugees for up to three years without asking them to apply for asylum the uk announced a relaxation to its own rules and those amendments include allowing wait for it hannah it's pretty generous allowing those who are related to british nationals to come to the uk 
and those from Ukraine who are already in the UK may be allowed to stay a bit longer if their visa runs out and they can't actually return. Lucky them. Another concession announced is to allow those already in the UK on a visitor visa to switch to a points-based route or family visa. Or, Ooh, yeah, I know. Or, generosity. I know, it's, it's astounding. You can also apply for a standard visitor visa, which costs £95 for up to six months and can be issued for reasons such as tourism, volunteering, or for visiting friends and family, but apparently not for fleeing war. And, you know, it's quite hard if you come over here on a six-month visa to prove definitively that you will be returning home after six months. How much of Ukrainian currency do you reckon it's going to take to buy £95 in British money? I mean, fuck knows. But also, like, just I can't imagine the administrative hubs are, like, functioning that well at the moment. I think friend of the podcast, Jess Fosterke, put it best when she tweeted at the weekend, let the refugees in, you fucking monsters. Yeah, I mean, I say it every time. I don't even think you should be a refugee. I just think we should generally just let people in. Well, people should enjoy freedom of movement. But there you have it. Times of crisis, you can always rely on the Tory government to do the absolute minimum that it can. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think... I don't know, I kind of get the sense that... Because, like, obviously, there are refugees from other places currently trying to get into Mm. the UK, but it does feel like the support for people of Ukraine, like, is considerably higher. I don't know. Do you mean public support? Yes, yeah, I think so. Well, I think that the closer something is to you, in a number of ways, geographically, but also culturally, the more you are able to identify with it. Yeah. If you see a heavily pregnant woman, yeah. which I saw being interviewed at the border, they asked her, you know, what it felt like to know that she wouldn't be having her baby in the Ukraine and she was absolutely distraught. It speaks to people if that person's life resembled your life a little bit before this happened. So it people do respond, I think. I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but I'm just saying I think that's the way that human beings are built. Jen, on that tragic note, <laughs> can you hear the unmistakably necessary sound of the good news coming this way? <laughs> Bring it to me. Bring you an update to last week's story about Hank the Tank. Everybody's favourite food habituated bear. Thank God. So for anyone who doesn't know, God knows where you've been. Hank is a £600 black bear who had, it was claimed been terrorising Lake Tahoe communities by breaking into their homes to get at their sweet, sweet human food. But hang on. It appears Hank has been fitted up. Wow. Yeah, like a stuffed pig. I don't even know if that's the right (laughs) reference, but I'm going to leave it there. Never heard that before. (laughs) Now, it's squealing like a stuffed pig, isn't it? Fitted up like a something else. I don't know. You can get me on at that Dunleavy if you know the answer. Anyway, DNA evidence has revealed that the break-ins were committed not just by Hank, but by three separate bears. Wow. Yeah. Shit. Meaning that officials are no longer seeking the death penalty in this case. And by that, I mean they're not going to put Hank down when they catch him. Were they going to put him down just because he Yeah, I didn't mention that last week because it was a bit sad. I was living in hope that something would happen and it has. Hang on. So that was going to be his penalty... 
for for stealing people's food. Yeah, death penalty case in California, stealing well, stealing pizza. That's strong. No, he was he's been breaking into people's houses, and by that I don't mean like just punching through a window and sneaking through. I mean like fully. Well, let me get to my quote. All right. Instead, they're going to refocus efforts on tagging the bears for genetic data and then releasing them into a nearby wild habitat. Pete Tira, good old Pete, mm. master of the spoken word, creator of the phrase, it's easier to eat leftover pizza than to go into the woods. <laughs> what he said, and this will answer your question, when you have a bear forcibly crashing its way through a garage door or ripping open a front door with people inside, ripping open a front door while you're inside. That's insane. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> Peter says, that's pretty brazen and unusual. Pretty brazen. That's like a master of understatement. I'm going to have that part on a T-shirt. It's a fucking brazen bear. Brazen and unusual. What you say a bear is brazen? He's a bear. Meanwhile... Local police said on their Facebook page, and I quote, please stop calling us to give us your opinions about Hank. <laughs> there we go. That's the best I can do for happy news, Jen. I hope it cheered you up. Oh, it's lovely. Lovely stuff. Oh, well done. Stay of execution for Hank. Just watch what you do, you brazen bear. Your food habituated brazen bear. And unusual. <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we repress our emotions about reports of a mental health crisis in teenage girls because the patriarchy. Okay, that's a lie. There'll be no repressing here because this is sexism of the week and we're not really about that. Unfortunately, this can't necessarily be said for teenage girls as a study of 15,000 secondary school pupils by mental health platform Steer Education and Social Enterprise Minds Ahead found. According to the report, mental health issues caused by the COVID pandemic appear to be hitting young girls harder than their male counterparts. It found that girls aged 11 are 30% more likely to suffer from poor mental health compared to boys of the same age increasing to more than twice as likely by the age of 18. And in addition to this, the report said increasing numbers of girls were going to, and I quote, great lengths to conceal signs of distress, making it harder for teachers and I guess parents as well to identify and help them. And the report said that while 60% of girls did this before the pandemic, this had now risen to 80%. And that levels of what it called unhealthy perfectionism and extreme self-control among teenage girls had risen from 20 to more than 80%. Oh my God. So the report doesn't actually sort of offer any specific insights as to why this gap might be widening. Senior education consultant at Steer, Simon Antwist, said that this was especially worrying that girls were hiding their emotional state and added, we should be particularly alarmed by the state of girls' mental health in secondary schools. It is at a precipice and the pandemic has exacerbated a worrying trend. This is obviously just off the top of my head, but, you know, women, obviously, we know young girls are raised to be people-pleasers and etc etc so it doesn't seem like a massive stretch to consider the possibility that that is exactly why we are not seeing the distress in them yeah absolutely and god it sounds so hackneyed to say it but you know the internet yeah it's people there to give you advice on how to 
not clue your parents or your teachers in to certain things. Girls are particularly prone to social contagion, so things like anorexia and cutting have always thrived, like especially things like cutting, which I have to say I'm no expert on, but we have had an interview with Kelly Wells that Mick did. Then on the same part, like you say, the idea that you're keeping it from your parents because, I don't know, girls are raised to... Even with the best will in the world, even with there's no criticism of parents, and I'm not a parent, you know, just society tells you stuff, like, that you are different. And you only have to look at the statistics that came out about the number of young girls in lockdown who've been expected to help at home, and the number of young boys that had, and it just wasn't the same. No. And girls will just notice that they're different. I suppose also... It's not criticism, it's an observation. It's a very, very stressful time for a lot of families. You know, it's been widely discussed how stressful Mm. the pandemic was. Well, for everyone, but like for families where you've got, you know, your parents working from home, trying to school you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that shit going on, probably quite worried about money in a lot of households, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. I guess like probably for a lot of teenagers, the idea that, you know, they, they may be feeling like they don't actually want to put anything else on their parents. If they've been conditioned to not rock the boat or whatever by society. Yeah. Oh, man. Good luck to you, girls. I wouldn't do it again. I really wouldn't. (laughs) No. Fucking hell. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined from Iceland by journalist and author of a new book, Secrets of the Spraka, Iceland's Extraordinary Women, which is out next week. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Eliza. Thank you for inviting me. Eliza's just been listening to the drama of a tree coming down outside my house, so I'm doubly grateful (laughs) for that. (laughs) We're familiar with weather stories here in Iceland, no problem. (laughs) Very windy and quite cold, I would imagine, quite a lot of the time. Not as cold as you would think, but we like to, you know, keep ourselves mysterious, I guess. (laughs) As well as being an author and a journalist. You are Iceland's first lady. I know that's not an official title, but it's kind of the generic title that we could use. And I wonder if we could start talking about that because you addressed that at the start of the book in that everything that you write is subject to closer scrutiny than maybe another woman writing exactly the same book. And we've been having a conversation over here nationally about Carrie Johnson, Boris Johnson's wife, and how she's spoken about in the media I wonder if you could just give us a little snapshot of your life, the pressures and the media attention. Yes. I mean, first of all, it's an incredible privilege and an honor to be able to serve. And I just enjoy it every day. It's so diverse and there's so many different things to do. But as you said, there is no job title called First Lady. And I didn't run for any sort of position and I don't have a salary and, and, and I have my own projects. And I think when my husband was first elected president in 2016, I found that a little bit intimidating because I, by nature, am a rule follower and I want to do what I'm supposed to do. And I wanted to, you know, bring dignity to the office and to what I was doing. And so I wasn't sure, am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do that? What am I supposed to wear or say? But I also wanted to be myself, of course. And and it's taken me or it's taking me a few years to kind of really adjust to that. But I began to think of it more as an opportunity that if there is no handbook on how to be the spouse of a head of state, then that gives me some leeway to define the role in the way that I want to define it. 
I firmly believe that if somebody were in this role and didn't want to do anything or take part in public life at all, that they should have no obligations to do mm. so. But I wanted to be active. I, I wanted to be seen. And especially as the female spouse of a male head of state, I thought it was very important in this day and age to confound expectations about what might people might expect for someone in my position. As you said, there's a stereotype a little bit that these first ladies, for lack of a better term, are spouses of heads of state and government are often talked about what they are wearing or who they are wearing mm. or whether their interests lie in very traditional female or, or caregiving roles. And I really wanted to show that we are all unique individuals and, and I could be doing more than that. So in this role, I do a lot of speaking engagements. I open a lot of conferences. I talk about issues, for instance, like sustainable travel and tourism and entrepreneurship mm. and innovation. And I've always continued to do my own work. And part of that is, is including this, writing my, my first book. People have probably spotted that you're not Icelandic from your accent. Although I have to say, a lot of people in that neck of the woods, their English accents are so great that you couldn't actually tell. You do say at the start that you knew very little about Iceland. And I decided to write a little list of everything I knew about Iceland. (laughs) Reindeer, Northern Lights, Bjork, obviously, the banking crisis. The feminist strike, which you do cover in your book, perhaps to be more accurate, is called the Women's Day Off. So I'm really glad that you asked me about this women's strike or or the Women's Day Off. It was called the Women's Day Off to be a little bit more palatable to people uh, who were organizing it. And it's an event that took place in Iceland in 1975 when the women of the country decided to take a day off or go on strike. Uh, in order to protest wage inequalities and other inequalities between the sexes. And what that meant, and I I should actually stop and clarify, of course, you know, pre-social media, this is something that people, it was word of mouth Mm. protest. And 90% of the women took part. And many of them went into Reykjavik in the capital to have a a sort of celebration and and and, and speeches and songs and things like that. And the country shut down because 90% of the women didn't go to their jobs, didn't do the work at the home. The banks had to shut because the tellers were women and there were flights were canceled because the flight attendants were women. And men who were reading the news on the radio, you could hear children playing in the background because they'd taken their children to work with them because the schools were closed because mm-hmm. so many of the teachers were women. And that move, that one event really galvanized the country to show that Uh, when we stand together, change is really possible. And also to show, of course, how valuable the work of women was. And I should add there that this wasn't something that was done to spite men or against men in any way. Many, many men knew about this and were very supportive of the initiative just to, again, to showcase the value of the work that the women were doing. And only five years later, Iceland elected the first female president in the world. And that's those two events are are seen as as fairly linked mm. because it really galvanized a movement for people to show when we stand together we are we are stronger together and can really make a difference. Yeah, I think what's really impressive about it is as well when you look at things like that and you think it's all very well in principle, but you know what would I do with my kid? Who's going to look after my kid? My husband does a really important job. I am outside of the group that is able to do this, but that didn't happen. No, they just people, did. It. Everybody went in. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. People just went in. And and again, that's because I would think that many of the men who had their quote unquote important jobs also would have said, yeah, I'll, I'll take the kids today in to help show you that. Not mm. well over my dead body, you're going in. Yeah. So that's my sense of it anyway. Obviously, I actually wasn't even born when it happened. But <laughs> but my husband has talked about it. He was a young child and he remembers because his supper that night, which his father cooked, was horrible. He says. <laughs> Still. 
etched into his mind. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sprachar mm-hmm. means extraordinary woman. And I was searching for an equivalent in the English language and I realized there's not one. I know. I know. I, I realized that too. And it's fine because Iceland has given English the words, you know, the geezers and berserk. And I feel like we can give English language sprakar as well. Yeah. It's terrific. It's a great word. Mm-hmm. It's a very old and obscure word. And, and the strange thing about it too, is that it really had fallen out of fashion, even in Iceland. So I've had to do a lot of explaining within Iceland to the word as well. And I find this almost a delicious irony that it's an immigrant with English as the first language who is trying to reintroduce an Icelandic word into the Icelandic mm-hmm. vernacular. It's the plural of the singular word spraki. And it's, it's a word that means outstanding woman or outstanding women. And it's a masculine word grammatically, which I also find kind of interesting. So if you say how they are changing the world, the word they in some senses could be used in the masculine sense mm. because it's referring to a masculine noun. I'm sure that listeners really want to delve into the minutiae of Icelandic grammar. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I hope that it's a word that is intriguing to, to readers and a word that we can really adopt here in the English language because I think we need more words to celebrate women. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it until I started thinking about that word, that there isn't Mm -hmm. really many positive words that describe groups of women. Even ones that are in in theory positive somehow reduce or minimalize Mm. or sexualize or infantilize women. Yeah. And uh, this one does not. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant word. I met someone from Iceland once who told me, only half jokingly, that everybody in Iceland knows everybody because yeah. we are talking about a country that's 320,000. 360 now. We Three... can't, we have to, you know, we've got to stay up to date on the newest <laughs> figures. Which is, for a frame of reference, which is about the size of the, the city of Nottingham. Um, yeah, for, Coventry, I, I think, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and given how many cities we've got of that size, I think Bristol's about that size as well. So mm-hmm. it really is quite tiny. And although, obviously, like I say, that they were only half joking when they said that to me, there's a couple of lovely anecdotes in your book that kind of proved him right. <laughs> the fact that one of the women that you talked to about about birth didn't have an epidural because the anesthesiologist was her ex-boyfriend and she found it a bit weird. Which... A bit too intimate of a moment, yes. Yeah. Um, but also that there's this word which translates to stomach sisters, which is a word that <laughs> talks about two women who have slept with the same man, which again, I would imagine in a small a small country is, is a way more usual than it is here. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so many lovely, lovely anecdotes in your book. One thing I want to stop and talk about is you say quite clearly in this, you have four children. Had you Mm -hmm. stayed in Canada, you probably would not have had four children because Mm -hmm. Iceland is just better for mums. And I want... (laughs) Parents, for parents, For parents, indeed. (laughs) I wonder if you could try and sum it up for us in in, um, as much or as little time as it takes about (laughs) what the rest of the world could learn from... Mm -hmm how parents, how maternity mm-hmm. works, how women mm-hmm. and the workplace and mums mm-hmm. and the workplace work. Mm-hmm. Because I'm talking for someone who hasn't had children, but mm-hmm. I have nonetheless been punished by my potential to have children mm. in that people look at you and say, oh, but if she's just going to go off on maternity leave, it punishes all women, regardless of whether you want to have children or can't right. have children or don't have, or do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's a really interesting lead into that as well, because doesn't it really all come down to choice? I mm. mean, hopefully we're 
as a society, I hope that we're trying to facilitate things so that people are allowed to choose what whatever works best for them, whether that's they have a large family or a small family or facilities that enable them to have a larger family if that's what they so choose. But in Iceland, of course, like so many places, it's it's very multifaceted. And and I, I absolutely am not trying to say if X country introduces X policies, things will mm. be better for you. But I can speak to my own experience and recount the stories of the, the experience of other women I interviewed in my book. There are absolutely uh, policies and structures within society that facilitate that, uh, notably uh, excellent parental leave policies, which are paid by the state rather than by the employers and are what's called a use it or lose it system. So one parent uh, gets a certain number of months allocated and then the second parent gets a certain number of months allocated. And then there's a third chunk that you can split. The result of that being that, that you know, the, the, the pressure to take the leave, which is now a year long, it doesn't fall to one single parent. Then there is a very comprehensive and subsidized system of childcare that starts after the parental leave policies expire. So from the age of between one and two, people go into this play school system, it's called. It's called play school, so it emphasizes play and social interaction rather than, you know, learning to read at the age of two and a half or something. And there's subsidies for siblings. There's subsidies if you are a single parent or a student or, or have disabilities. What that means is that it encourages people to go back to the workplace. And, and Iceland has the highest participation of women in the workforce of the OECD countries and one of the highest birth rates as well in Europe. And what that also means and, and is kind of built around that that isn't in, in the legal system is just a society that isn't work versus play or zero sum game with what we contribute professionally with what we contribute with our families that it's sort of a it takes a village mentality mm. so if i go to work and i say look my son has a ballet recital this morning i have to go and see him in that i don't have to book a half day's holiday to do that i can just leave my desk for an hour and and and, and go and do that and then go back to to my job obviously depending on, on on what my job is in a sense and there's this attitude that that's normal and that that's all right. And, oh, I'm a student and my daughter got the chicken pox last week. And so I'll have to submit the essay a little bit later because I was looking after my daughter with the chicken pox. That would probably be also be, be very acceptable. Or there's a day off school. And so I'm just going to bring my child with me to the office and, and have them with me today while I'm working. So that dimension really helps things a lot as well. And then there's also subsidized after school programs for children in primary school. So everybody, roughly the equivalent of, of a year's worth of either music lessons or, or sporting activities is also subsidized so that with the idea that everybody can take part in some kind of extracurricular activity mm. as well. To the degree to which it is acceptable to have your children at work with you is perhaps mm -hmm. best summarized in the story you have about a, a politician talking in <laughs> parliament and breastfeeding at the same time. Which... Yes, yes. Again, we've got a couple of politicians here, Stella Creasy being one of them, are trying really hard to say, do you know what? These are children, like, <laughs> these are children, yeah. they, they come with us. If you want us back at work as quickly as you do as an MP, mm -hmm. then they're mm -hmm. going to come with us. But mm -hmm. I, I can't even, I cannot envisage that happening in the House of Parliament at all. Can, mm -hmm. can I ask... It's easy now to say it's brilliant. What was the response like at the time? It was news. It was international news. And then I think because Iceland's a small country, in Iceland, it was news that Iceland made international news, yeah. if you follow my logic yeah. there. When I spoke to her for the book, she was always a little bemused by how much attention it got. Because as she said, if your child is hungry, you're going to feed it, whether that's you know nursing it or giving it a sandwich. And she hadn't expected to be delivering the speech that she was delivering. She thought she was just sitting in parliament, quietly nursing her baby. 
And then she was asked to stand up because in Iceland, uh, members of parliament have to go and stand at a podium to deliver their speeches. And she was in the middle of nursing her baby. And she thought, well, either I rip this baby from my breast and hand it screaming to my colleague, or I just hold the baby who is very quietly nursing while I deliver my remarks. And it was it was news in Iceland as well. It, it absolutely wasn't criticized as far as I can see in any sense. But if you kind of take a step back there and think, she had the baby, you know, and was nursing the baby in Parliament. I don't see anybody, I have. I don't recall anybody talking about that fact, that she had the baby with her in Parliament. And I, I believe in the UK, wasn't there a story that it, someone was kicked out because it, the baby wasn't a member of Parliament, was not allowed on the floor. And the interesting thing is, this is a conversation that's only really happening now. And I mean, now, literally mm-hmm. at the moment, the last few mm-hmm. years, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ideally, more and more women are coming into Parliament. So the issue is going to be raised more and more mm-hmm. and more. But I, mm-hmm. I genuinely can't imagine. I, and mm-hmm. certain elements of the media, mm-hmm. I think, would respond so badly to it. Mm-hmm. I think the perception here, you know, that, that it, children are ultimately benefiting all of society. And that's not to apply pressure to people who choose not to have children. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be seen as a burden to society because, you know, they're going to be paying our pensions yeah. and they're going to be paying our taxes later on. Yeah. So you really see that everywhere. I mean, you could go to the, the poshest restaurant in Iceland and get a high chair if you asked for one when you went in. And, you know, children are, are tend to be welcome in uh, in in most scenarios, I, I would imagine. I can't envisage that elsewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is the case, though, in the UK. Um, someone told I, me I that the society... I don't that many fancy restaurants, to be honest, <laughs> but I can't imagine that. I can't imagine the Ivy being okay with no. people in it. No. Well, someone told me that in the UK, it's, is this true that the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was established before the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children? I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. That sounds very British. I think it's interesting as well, because we're not just talking about motherhood in the sense of a family of 2.4 or in Iceland, I think it's 2.9, isn't it, children? Mm -hmm. We're talking about single mothers, teenage mothers, women having babies and there being no level of judgment about it, which, again, Mm -hmm. is extraordinary. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're in a situation now in this country, and I think probably it's reflective of the West at large, in that a lot of women are leaving having babies till later and, you know, uh, perhaps not marrying or mm-hmm. just not finding the right person rather than it be a choice and talking about having children on their own. And mm-hmm. it's still being a big deal here, whereas it doesn't mm-hmm. appear to be a big deal in Iceland. I mean, how do you explain that? You know, I, I wish I had the answer to that question with a lot of statistics to back it up. And I don't, I just have my instinct of that, you know, it's been this, it's a society that's been built on this remote island in the North Atlantic that has had to deal with all kinds of, of weather issues and poverty and famine and disease over the centuries. And it has to be adaptable. Like there isn't time to worry about issues as to whether or not a mother and a father stood before God and committed to each other for life if they're raising a child. So nowadays you see that reflected, as you say, in the fact that uh, the majority of firstborn children are born to parents who aren't married, although most of them are together as a couple there, to the degree that people don't even ask uh, if their partner, if they're married to their partner at all, it doesn't, it's not really an issue. And as you say, it's not uncommon to see very young parents and also parents who who are parents in their 40s, groups of, of family units, there isn't really a sort of nuclear family unit. So it's not uncommon, for instance, for a woman, if she had a first child at the age of 20, and then she had her fourth child at the age of 40, and maybe with two or three different partners, and it all kinds of sort of cobbles together. Yeah, It's not something that you hear, you know, whispered behind someone's back after they appear. Did you know that this happened? I, th- I think it is generally very accepted. Yeah. 
Now, one of the things that's uh, that's changing the world for women is um, obviously social media, and it's changing the world for women for good and for bad. I think. And I was wondering when you when you have a country like you say as as remote as Iceland, is that effect felt more profoundly? Do you think? And how 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 a social media worked for the positive mm-hmm. for women and for the negative? For the positive, it means that you can. Uh, quantify and measure change more easily. So, you know, if you're the state broadcaster, they have all kinds of measures in place to show, are we interviewing an equal balance of experts on this field or are staff people equal balance? How many people are getting time in it? And and, uh, people can really object and kind of create a a movement of, of willing to have change. And I think what helps from the negative side is the fact that it's small. So as you say, everyone knows each other. So in some senses, you're less likely to criticize some things, but it's also so much of it functions in Icelandic, which is a language that really almost only people from Iceland speak, which means that you say on online, you don't have these troll machines mm. who are, are, are commenting on any kind of post that they can find relating to feminism, for example, because they don't speak Icelandic. Or if it's a machine writing it, you can tell that very, very easily. Nevertheless, that's obviously a, a challenge here for us as it is for people elsewhere. There's a story that I talk about in the book on my chapter on media where a a woman made a comment about a small town that she'd visited and she didn't like it and the weather was bad. And, you know, it wasn't the nicest comment about this community, but she was just hit with a, almost a nuclear strike and she got rape threats and all kinds of other threats online. And, you know, when these are written like that, you can tell these are real people who have made these accusations. She took them all um, to the police but, it, you know, that's absolutely a problem that we have and, and the knock on effect that these kinds of situations have, because it it ultimately ends up silencing women's voices because women say, Look, I just I don't want to post anything on social media because I'm just going to get insulted and threatened for it disproportionately. And that's obviously a challenge in and of itself. Then there's a whole other area of, of for instance, um, sexual violence on the Internet. So there's a, a new law that was passed last year that so-called revenge porn and other forms of online sexual violence are now illegal in Iceland. But this is obviously a challenge that people are looking at, and especially when it comes to, to young people and teenagers and trying to educate them and educate people that all of what's going on online and, and sending people photos of, say, unwanted so-called dick pics mm. are, you know, that that's that's illegal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I don't think the word un- unwanted is. I, I mean, I don't know why anyone will want one yeah. anyway. I know. To be honest, let alone is a first lady. Is a first lady allowed to say dick yeah, pic in, absolutely. A, in a podcast? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I mean, one of the things we say on this podcast all the time is gender inequality is awful for everybody. It's not just awful for women; it's bad for men too. And Iceland. In fact, that whole region of the world, always up there in the happiest place on earth. I mean, forget Disneyland, Iceland, you know, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. The Finns, they're the happiest too in Finland, yeah. Do you think the reason that you are the happiest place on earth is because you don't have the same degree? It's not perfect, but you don't have the same degree of gender inequality as the rest of the world. I mean, I think a lot of those things go hand in hand. Absolutely. You know, the more gender equal countries are, the happier they are, the more prosperous, prosperous they are, the more peaceful they are. And Iceland's the most peaceful country on earth. You don't even have an army, right? No, we don't have an army. No, us and Costa Rica. And, and the longer living its populations are. And that, you know, that includes men. So men live longer in more gender equal countries. And, and you're absolutely right that this is... I, 
you know, I don't know how many times we all need to be saying this, as you know, that this gender equality isn't make women better at the expense of men. This is something that benefits every person mm. in society. And there are a thousand trillion statistics that back it up. And it's not a women's issue. It's a human rights issue. Absolutely. Yeah, I could not agree more. I mean, good news for Iceland. I was talking to the boss, Sarah Millican, yesterday, and she tells me she's going to Reykjavik on her tour this time. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. This has been brilliant, Eliza. I could literally talk to you all day about the lovely little fun facts I found out about Iceland. You just said you're coming over to London. Are you, are you doing, I some, am. Are I'll you be doing there. some talks and things? I am. I think I'm taking part in the Women of the World Conference. You can go to the Ivy and ask them to put a high chair in and see what their response is. I'll be interested. Do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined by Vicky Gosling, Chief Executive of Great British Snow Sports. Hi, Vicky. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Jan. Not too bad. Not too jet lagged because you've just got back from Beijing, and you're about to go back again. I know. Well, I was pretty horrendous um, up until yesterday, and then I had a decent night's sleep last night, so I feel far more human today. I have to say. Well, you, you look very human. I mean, (laughs) well, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. What a compliment. I need to work on those, don't I? Anyway, so Vicky, GB Snowsport is the governing body for snow sports in the UK. And you manage 12 Olympic and Paralympic snow sport disciplines. Can you please tell me and the listener a little bit more about what that actually means? Yes. So effectively... I mean, my background is really eclectic, came from military, followed by Invictus, etc. And then um, when I first came in, it was called British Ski and Snow Sport. And that was just after Pyeongchang, three and three course years ago now. And it was very much just the Olympic disciplines of which there were six different sort of teams, effectively. And we, when I came in, we merged it with Paris Snow Sports and we had sort of four different teams there. And then we increased the Olympic teams to include border cross and moguls, which then made it eight. So across those different sports, you've got everything ranging from uh, in the Olympic side, Alpine to Nordic to moguls, which are the bumps, to half pipe, you can do that on a board or skis, to snowboarding. And so we've got quite a wide range of, of disciplines within the Olympic side. And then on the para Olympic side, you've got para Nordic, you've got sit ski, visually impaired on the Alpine side, you've obviously got para snowboarding as well, which is really good fun. And they are literally, as we speak, they're on a plane on the way to China, which is exciting. And I joined them on Wednesday. Does Nordic include the biathlon? No, so biathlon is confusing. So it does on the Paralympic side, Mm -hmm. but on the Olympic side, it's a separate organisation. So Nordic literally on the Olympic side is just the cross-country skiing, Mm -hmm. male and female. So short sprint, long distance, and it's quite beastly in the fact it's really massively endurance and you need a great big massive pair of lungs for that one and then on the paralympic side we have both nordic cross country at sit ski and also biathlon on the sit ski so it's and that's really exciting because we've just had williams make us a sit ski in advanced engineering and so it's the first time it's it's on show we'll be out in in china and it looks amazing I've been talking about the biathlon a lot on the podcast recently because it is just like, it's incredible. It's like snow version of the modern pentathlon, basically, isn't it? But without 
a lot of the things. <laughs> it's nothing like the modern pentathlon, but they, yeah, they ski and they the shoot. Other, which is, the horse and things, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is like, yeah. it, it, it's great fun to watch. Anyway, so Vicky, you've just touched on it just there. You talked about your background. I did just want to ask you about your background, actually, because it's quite interesting. You're the chief executive of the 2016 Invictus Games, and obviously you've been involved in a variety of voluntary and otherwise roles in sport but you actually served in the RAF for over 20 years so this is a bit of a sidestep how did you come to be involved in this? Well I think effectively so I obviously did my military career and then I got uh, as a pull to go and be the military exec lead for what became the first Invictus Games and then went on to be the chief exec at the next Invictus Games. After that I then uh, got involved in helping build the rugby centurions with John Schmidt and the headhunter just approached me and said I've got another project that I think you'd really suit can you have a look at this for me and that and this is a British ski and snowboarding and I just thought you know what I've been in an environment that's um, I love the sort of entrepreneurial side the disrupting side and this just looked really interesting it was clearly you know at the time I think it was about five million investment and so I thought, well, if we created quite a big vision and we grew it and we incorporated Paralympic snow sport and we, you know, set a, set a mission to put more athletes across more podiums, across more snow sport disciplines than ever in British history, then that's a great challenge to face into. And having seen what can be achieved when you put your mind to it, you know, through the unconquered spirit, particularly with Invictus and seeing triple amputees swimming 200 metres, for example, then I do believe anything is possible. So, um I like a challenge and particularly given we barely got any snow or mountain ranges, it's quite a big challenge. Mm. And and we have actually managed over the last couple of years to, to have the best results in British history with two Olympic champions. And we've had Paralympic champions as well. And we've also won numerous World Cups uh, along with three crystal globe winners. So it's been a, a great couple of years. Obviously, the Olympics didn't get us what we actually hoped for but you know onwards and upwards as they say just i just want to pick up on something you said there which i thought was interesting you said you liked the disruptor side of it i just wondered what you meant by that with invictus it was really challenging because we had to put these games on within nine months nobody really knew what they were what they stood for and then taking them over to america again it was trying to get this brand known and and getting people to sit back and listen to actually the relevance the importance of veterans military veterans who'd effectively you know done what they'd done for their country and then been broken and then almost felt cast aside so how do we then put them back on on onto the platform and actually give them an opportunity to showcase what they had and i've also uh, you, you may know helped to sort of set up a fintech up in manchester which is really championing financial inclusion and uh, disrupting that sort of payday lending space. So I've enjoyed doing that. And then, of course, disrupting in snow sports by nobody expects Britain to suddenly start getting, you know, having world champions or look at Dave Riding winning the World Cup. You know, everyone's like, wow, nobody expects that because we don't have, we're not a snow sport nation by um, definition, really. Uh, um, you know, people don't come here to ski or snowboard. However, you know, being able to disrupt that thought process mm. and break through barriers and actually take people to heights way beyond expectation is really exciting. And so that's what I mean by that. So can we talk a little bit first about the Beijing Olympics, which have been described 
by yourself as well just now as, as a little bit disappointing for Team GB and we didn't get any medals outside of the curling competitions. So where did it all go wrong or did it actually even go wrong or is this just a sort of cyclical kind of thing that that happens you know I, I, so i'll talk purely on the gb snow sports side um so that, that you know the sports that won snow sports so for us it was hugely disappointing because we went out there with undoubtedly the best quality uh world-class athletes we've ever had in snow sports Generally, we had Charlotte Banks, who's a world champion. We had James Woods, who's been a world champion. You know, we we had Casey Ormond, a Crystal Globe winner. And uh, Izzy Atkin, a previous Olympic medalist. And that, not to mention, you know, our younger generation potential of Kirsty Muir and Zoe Atkin and our cross-country skiers. I mean, and the mogul skiers. And so thick and fast and high quality. And the Olympic qualification stands higher than ever before. But the problem was we lost Izzy Atkin through injury before she even competed. We lost James Woods with injury before he even competed in Slopestyle. And then Charlotte Banks, who's our world champion and one of the world, 10 World Cup podiums, didn't medal because, you know, on that fifth bench, she effectively made the decision that potentially cost, cost her that opportunity. And that's devastating because here we are having had the best results in British history so far with more athletes on more podiums than ever before and then you get to the olympics which is effectively your shot window yeah and you don't medal. and so you want to show off your goods you want to show what you're capable of and then boom there you are with everybody looking in the shot window and, and it doesn't happen and so it's devastating really but that said the reality is when you look at the top tens that we got, when you look at the fact that Kirsten Moore came fifth in the big airs, the first time big airs even been hosted. You know, when you look at the fact that we had Kirsty and Katie in the finals of Slopestyle, we had Michaela Gergen Schofield in the finals of Moguls, and it's a brand new programme. It's going to be going a couple of years, you know, three years. We had Hugh and Charlotte coming sixth in the team event. We didn't even expect to enter the team event. So there's a lot of positives that came from it. And what we did see was actually the strength the strength and depth as we move forward is is there for us. So the future's looking bright. But the games are really unpredictable, Jen. I mean, you know, I know for a fact that the USA thought Michaela Schiffon was going to come mm. up with five medals. Sure, well, yeah. that didn't happen, right? Mm. It was brutal. I mean, it was minus 36 degrees at times. It was brutal in terms of, I feel, the restrictions, the COVID implications before we even got there. Andrew Young had COVID and then he came out later than expected. And that it was very prohibitive in in a way as well. You know, every, everywhere you went, everybody's masked up. You've got people in hazmat suits consistently all around. You spraying dettol everywhere. You've, you, you know, where you go into the food hall, you're literally lit, eating in a booth, a plastic booth and that you can see through. But, you, you know, it's just you and you're plastic plate and your plastic knife and fork and and it's not exactly what you visualize as going to the olympics and that mm. that iconic moment that you boot yourself up for so i, I mean it's brutal but then all, all the other nations have to face into that too right so i can't use that as an excuse but i what i would say is that when you lose a couple of your medal you know your medal opportunities early doors well, three of them early doors. And you don't have underneath that. We don't have, like the Americans probably have five Charlotte Banks, right, for border cross. We have one. They have 
five Kirsty Muirs, we are one, you know. So that's where we're slightly more exposed. And that's mm. why I think we're on a journey now. And we've got to build that strength and depth. And we've got to build them so that we can actually, we need to invest more to get more athletes that are capable of doing this. Because we've shown what we can do and what we can deliver over a short space of time. So if we continue in that vein, then fingers crossed. And and let's face it, you know, Milan Cortina is our stomping ground. That's what we do our training camps. You know, we should be in a stronger position for there than ever before. But it's, you know, it's disappointing not to come back with medals. Okay, you've mentioned investment there. So can we talk about funding? UK sport has obviously historically favoured sports which have a greater, you know, greater medal prospects. The climate in the UK isn't massively suited to winter sports, which makes it obviously harder to A, like nurture a talent pool because of a lack of facilities and interest, and B, it makes it more expensive. So it's kind of a bit of a catch-22 situation. Do you think we have good reason to hope for more success or is it fundamentally unrealistic to think that we will ever be major players? No, I think it it is realistic, but it does come down to funding. Let's be honest. And and actually, you know, I would have said this time four years ago, people did not expect us to grow world champions. I mean, we literally had James Woods, you know, becoming a world champion in Slopes. Then we got Charlotte Banks becoming a world champion in, in Border Cross. We didn't even have a moguls programme. And now we've got people like Michaela coming eighth in the Olympics, you know, and that's really early on um, in her journey. And and it's very feasible, but it does take investment. So with the with the growth in investment, what we have we might not have seen the Olympic medals, but what we have seen is a damn sight more medals across more disciplines, across more, you know, more athletes than ever in British history in the last couple of years. And that's come down to the increase in investment. So if that continues and you get the depth then it is possible because we do have some great facilities in the UK as well, you know, particularly for the freestyle events. So whether you're talking about Greystones in Manchester or, you know, the Chill Factor, you can do a lot of the training for for the slope style events in the UK. And we have a great facility in Italy as well, actually, with an airbag that's super helpful. And they're the type of things you can put in the UK. It's not prohibitive. Alpine's slightly more difficult because you can't practice a downhill in the UK and you know it it is more difficult I would say to grow world champions but then you look at Dave Riding you know he he, his background is is from the dry slopes and um and actually he won that world cup which was fantastic to see so anything is possible but it does it does come down to investment and the greater the investment the easier it is to, to deliver so we've got the Paralympics starting on March the 4th and as we said before, you know, you're on your way back out to Beijing. Can you tell us anything about the state of Paralympic snow sports in the UK at the moment and, and who we should be looking out for in the Paralympics as well? Yeah, I mean, the Paralympic side, we we had we got 10 medals at the recent World Championships just, you know, a couple of months ago. So best best results, again, we've ever had in British history. And we've got a really exciting group of individuals, but I'm still concerned about, like I was with the Olympics, is getting these individuals to the start line. I already know that we've, you know, we're struggling with a couple of individuals with COVID right now. Mm. So it's been a roller coaster ride. However, what I would say is that, you know, from the visually impaired, you've got Neil and his brother, Andrew, you've got Mena, and you've got Millie, you know, so both, all at Millie Knight, Mena Fitzpatrick, shown up it Brown is effectively a sit skier. She's incredibly talented and, and a recent medalist. And and then, you know, in your snowboard side, we've got 
JBM, Owen Pick. We've got our, our Nordic athletes who are competing as well. You know, Scott Mina, it's a great, it's got great potential. Callum, Steve, we, we're taking 20 athletes, which is the biggest contingent yet. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited for what they can produce. I just think let's just get us all to the start line safely and then I'll be happy to see what they can produce. <laughs> If anyone has been watching the Winter Olympics and, you know, they're going to watch the Paralympics shortly and they've been inspired, you know, they think, well, that looks like fun. I want to have a go at that. How easy is it to pick up a snow sport in the UK? And and how do you go about that first part of the journey? Where can you find out about facilities near you? Scotland, England, Wales. You've got snow sport Scotland, snow sport England, snow sport Wales. So effectively if um you know you're looking at it and thinking that looks great fun that we actually have 60 facilities would you believe within the uk to enable you to, to take part so it's about connecting in with those organizations and they will have clubs and societies that you can join or of course you can go to your local snow dome to start with but if it's something that you want to take up and get involved in then they will have all the grassroots contacts to support and, you know, at the, that we're really keen to find rich, diverse talent to basically take through the pipeline. We're always looking for new talent. So, uh, you know, we'd love to see more more kids taking part in particular because it's such a great, fun thing. It's really good for the free-spirited, you know, approach and kids love it. And who doesn't like snow? Well, I mean, absolutely. Or indeed a dry ski slope. <laughs> yeah. You know. Uh, so... <laughs> Vicky, the Paralympics get underway on the 4th of March and be broadcast on Channel 4, so you will be able to watch that all taking place. And, oh my goodness, we need some good news at the moment. And uh, there is nothing quite as joyful as an Olympics, in, you know, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, I hope people will watch and get behind those athletes. Where can we follow... GB Snow Sports to keep an eye on our medal tally. Well, basically, so on the GB Snow Sports website, which I think is GB, www.gbsnowsports.com, but also, and, and we're pretty active with Instagram and Facebook, etc. But also, as you say, Channel 4 are doing some great coverage and they've got uh, some great programming uh, scheduled to, to happen. So I think what, tuning into that would be helpful. Plus the fact we did quite a lot. Of, when I was out in uh, for the Olympics, I did quite a lot with Five Live, so I'm not quite sure which radio show is going to be covering it, but I'm sure they'll be pretty active anyway and getting some positive news back home, one would hope. Vicky, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jen. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film which contained a stuffed cat that looked for all the world like Joe does when I've asked for carpets, did we watch this week? Oh, it really does. This week we watched Tim Burton's star-studded comic book sci-fi caper, Mars Attacks, a time-old tale of little green men intent on wiping out mankind that's camper than a big bag of tits. I am going to caveat at the top that, as daft as Mars Attacks is, and it's really fucking silly... The timing of a film about any kind of invasion is unfortunate and might well have changed how well parts of this sat, with me at least. Anyway, two months after its US release in December 1996, Mars Attacks got its general release in the UK on February the 28th. The box office was not good. From a whopping $100 million budget, with a not inconsiderable $20 million of that spent on marketing... 
Mars attacks made just $37.77 million in America and $63.6 million elsewhere, giving it a profit margin of just $1.37 million. That is not great movie maths. Indeed, though the movie paid for itself, just, the production was so harrowing that Burton threatened never to direct another film again. Critics were divided too, either viewing it as classic Burton in that it's a gleefully chaotic feast of brilliant visuals and slightly unhinged plot lines, or classic Burton in that it's an overegged feast that fails to satisfy. As I hinted at the top, the cast is a batshit amount of big names. Mm. Jack Nicholson as Jack Nicholson 1 and Jack Nicholson 2, all right, all right, as US President James Dale and boozy Vegas tycoon Art Land. Glenn Close as the First Lady, Pierce Brosnan, who it's worth noting was Bond at the time, with this film falling slap bang between Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies, as bepiped scientist Donald Kessler, Martin Short stealing the show as Sleazebag Press Secretary Jerry Ross, Sarah Jessica Parker and Michael J. Fox as a couple, in the biblical sense, a rival TV show host, Lisa Marie as a hot Martian babe, Tom Jones, and I cannot stress this enough, absolutely nailing the role of Tom Jones, <laughs> Pam Greer is someone not given anywhere near enough to do. Danny DeVito's in it. You could argue that there are too many stars, and I do. But then I'd happily just watch an hour and a half of Tom Jones singing It's Not Unusual and then dancing in a desert with a bird of prey on his wrist. Oh my God, Tom Jones, why don't all films just end with Tom <laughs> Jones covered in wildlife? I just think it, you can put it in anything. This film was terrible. It really upset me. Broke back mountain, all fell apart. Here's Tom Jones covered in wildlife. Amazing. I'm in. Now, I saw Mars Attacks at the cinema and I also own it on DVD, but I haven't watched it for years. Have either of you seen it before? Yes, quite a few times. I saw it at the cinema when it first came out and I think we got it from the video shop a couple of times because I quite enjoy the B-movie satire that it is because my brother was well into B-movies when we were... Well, I say we were growing up. He's a bit younger than me, but yeah. My brother watched it at the cinema and he reported that it was so shit that I've never bothered to watch it. Interesting. My dad loves it, though. Like, fucking loves it. <laughs> Always went on about how much oh, he no. likes it. Offered family politics. Absolutely. Okay, the plot. Well, it's based on a series of Topps trading cards from the 1960s and almost as flimsy and takes a whole load of cues from, as Hannah has just suggested, B-movie sci-fi of the 1950s. Burton also says it's a parable about distrusting authority figures, but we can talk about that in a bit. Planet Earth is invaded by classic Martians, little green men who breathe nitrogen, tow X-ray laser guns, quack like ducks and have a very juvenile sense of humour. They might claim to come in peace, but as the title suggests, they're actually here to conquer Earth through cartoon violence and intergalactic shits and giggles including assassinating POTUS with a fake hand gag, playing skittles with the Easter Island heads, and transposing heads on Sarah Jessica Parker and her character's pet chihuahua. Less pure evil, more bunch of dickheads. Chaos ensues and continues to ensue, followed by more of the same chaos that goes on a bit, is what I'm saying, until the day is saved by the heroes of the film, a trailer-dwelling teenager and a senile Slim Whitman-loving grandma, a new-age hippie, and a black working-class family of four. And, and I cannot stress this enough, Tom Jones. <laughs> <laughs> so, first question. How much Jack Nicholson is too much Jack Nicholson? 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when that character plays two characters and one of those characters is the president, it always feels like it's being set up for a mistaken identity style or, you know, step in or one is really the other. And that doesn't happen. So the question of why there's two Jack Nicholsons (laughs) is perhaps the answer to your question, if that makes sense. I found it pointless and unsuccessful to have two Jack Nicholsons. Yeah. Agreed. And also, I mean, Jack Nicholson's very expensive. Very expensive. <laughs> and actually, famously... Have you tried to hire him? <laughs> famously really fucking savvy, because he took that terrific back-end deal out of Batman, which made him an absolute mm. fortune and was quite revolutionary at the time. You know, took everything, merchandise, uh, soundtrack, the lot he was in for... So I kind of wonder whether if you pay for Jack Nicholson, you try and squeeze every single second out of him (laughs) that you can. And maybe it was almost like a money saving. Let's not get somebody else. Let's just cast Jack Nicholson twice. Can I make a confession? Yeah. I didn't even notice he was in it as two characters. How? (laughs) I didn't even notice. I know you're full of a very bad cold, but I mean, I'm not even sure that excuses that, Jen. I almost didn't own up to it because I felt it was so ridiculous after this conversation that you two have just had, but I I didn't even notice. Out of the two roles that Jack Nicholson absolutely definitely does play in this gen, quite obviously, um, I'd say the president is the more successful one. Mm. That's the one I noticed. (laughs) Because he looks exactly like Jack Nicholson. Oh my God, he literally has to put on a Stetson and a wig and Jen is like, who is that? (laughs) Do you know why he did it? Because if they met each other, right, one of them would have died. Well, exactly. Thank you, (laughs) doppelgangers. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the cast in general, because it is uh, all-star gangbusters. Did any of performances stand out to you? I liked the guy from Inner Space, Martin Short. Martin Short. I mean, Martin Short's wonderful. Little squishy heart shape for Martin Short. Yeah, totally. Well, we've talked about him a lot, haven't we? Because he was so brilliant in... uh... Only Murders in the Building, which I would still recommend that you watch because Martin Short is terrific in it. It's kind of out of character for him as well, isn't it? To play someone quite as sleazy. When he mm, does yeah. the little spin that means he ends up on the bed, it just made me laugh <laughs> so much. I want to mention, I'm not sure you mentioned him in your run at the top. You might have. I was slight, I've was i been slightly distracted by shit technology. But did you mention Jim Brown? I did not mention Jim Brown. No. Okay, so yeah, I would say huge kudos to Jim Brown. And if you don't know who Jim Brown is. He's probably the best American footballer that's ever existed. No, he's not a boxer. He plays a boxer in this, though. Oh, yes, he plays a boxer in this. Yeah. So, to a degree, playing a version of himself. Mm -hmm. And then went into acting, but he was also really big in civil rights. And if you've ever seen One Night in Miami, that's about Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown. Jim Brown was like the fourth person in their their sort of civil rights gang. Yeah. And did a lot, so it was really impressive. But, you know, not the best actor in the world. But therefore, his place here is incredible because it's really knowing. He knows what he's doing and he's having a lot of fun doing it. And I really enjoyed it. Can I say this is the most enjoyable I've ever found Sarah Jessica Parker? I wanted to comment about Sarah Jessica Parker because I think I said it when we were talking about And Just Like That on Outside the Box because I was saying that I think she's still got it you know, again, reaffirms what I was saying at the time. I think she is a great comic actress. I really do. I think she's very good at it. And I thought she was very good in this as well. I agree. I also think that Glenn Close is just... For a woman who, as a rule, has sort of played women who were relatively un 
glamorous. Her transformation into that sort of almost Stepford wife look is incredible. I really enjoy that as well. Well, as we're already chatting about them, I did want to talk about the women because grandma aside, they just do quite a lot of screaming, eh? It's it's not necessarily excellent roles for women. No, I don't think she did very much, Glenn Close. I didn't feel like she contributed that much. Am I wrong? I mean, I I didn't notice Jack Nicholson was in it twice, so it's entirely (laughs) possible. Not many people contribute much in this because everyone gets the division of labour, you know. So little sort of screen time. She has a spectacular death. (laughs) Yeah. I think then you get onto the question of the wider question of Tim Burton as a whole. It's not just Mars Attacks. It's it's very Tim Burton in it. You know, he's fascinated by this sort of Frankenstein woman idea. You know, you see it in loads of his other films, including The Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, Mm. this sort of femme fatale that's sort of composed of... I mean, she's not a Frankenstein in this, is she? But she's, like, not real. She's... The Lisa um, Marie Martian babe character. Mm. Yes. Who was Tim Burton's girlfriend at the time. Yeah, they're always quite sexualised, aren't they? You know, there's one in uh, Sleepy Hollow as well that's played by someone who was his girlfriend at the time, as then. <laughs> there's a, there's a yeah. theme here. Lisa Marie's in Sleepy Hollow as well. When I was Googling the cast as I watched oh, it. Oh, maybe it is maybe Lisa it's, Marie. Maybe yeah. we need to be fair to Tim Burton and it was the same girlfriend that he cast in two films. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sleepy Hollow did follow this it was the next film he did after this oh, also really? on the Martian babe front that walk that she does and then when no mm. one's looking the little scuttle it's yeah. absolutely chef's kiss fantastic so yeah. I mentioned up at the top that Tim Burton had highfalutin notions about this being a parable about not trusting authority figures do you think that statement stands up to scrutiny I might actually have to have a second to think about this because until you said that, I hadn't even considered it at all. I think what's interesting about it is it's generally the opposite of these sort of films Mm. in that we don't treat them like they're invaders in it. We treat them like they're potential new friends, which is actually (laughs) like almost unheard of in this sort of thing. So I don't know. Tell me what you think while I'm thinking, Mick. I don't know whether it actually stands up as a full parable about that, but I think the people that we would usually see as heroes mostly are just bumped off in really extravagant sort of silly ways. And the people who are usually the underdogs get to save the day. And I mean, that's not a particularly new thing in cinema, but like the president doesn't usually die like that, particularly when he's actually trying to be friendly. The people in authority make really bad decisions, absolutely. But like you say, they're so contrary to the World War War decisions you'd usually expect from those yeah. figures that does that make it a bad thing? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and also they, they appear to listen to the science if you <laughs> gauge that Piers Brosnan is the person that sort of represents science because he's got a pipe, so he does. Yes. In that way, they actually do what we would ask them to do. So the shocker is, although it's not a shocker, obviously, because it's called Mars Attacks is that, as Natalie Portman says rather brilliantly, it wasn't the dove. Yeah. It's also, as Hannah mentioned and as I mentioned too, a parody or a spoof of those 1950s B-movies. And I Mm. wondered, do you think it works as a parody? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. I can't really qualify that with anything. (laughs) B-movies, science fiction B-movies have never really been my, my bag. But yeah, I think, I mean, it's obviously comedy right like it's pretty obviously not serious 
Yeah, I think it's more of an homage, right? Because mm. as much as I have loved this film in the past, watching it now, and again, like I mentioned at the top, I don't know whether it's the situation in Ukraine that has made me maybe think about this slightly differently, but I, I didn't laugh as much. There were some bits that I absolutely howled at that I always make me laugh, like the Martian walk, Tom Jones and the animals. There are things mm. that really stand out and I was looking forward to and they did not fail to deliver. But I think most of the script is actually quite clunky and it forgets to be funny enough to make it a parody. I think it... It, homage probably sounds like the right word because it does contain the level of camp because, of course, the reason things like The Blob and, you know, all of those just tremendous films, the black and white 50s yeah, sort yeah. of Well, they ones. just made a film about Ed Wood, right? So, well, exactly yeah. that. I was just about to say that. We watched Plan 9 from Outer Space. So I think it because those films weren't trying to be funny but turn out to be hilarious... Mm. Being deliberately funny seems a bit on the nose. So it's almost as if what he's trying to create is the kind of madcapness of them. That's what he's trying to yeah. replicate. And I think yeah, visually sure. it works, but I don't think this, the script just didn't work for me this time. I was just, it was so frustrating because it's so nearly and absolutely, obviously this is all just my opinion, an absolutely brilliant film. Nearly everything, all of the puzzles of the jigsaw are in place, but it's not good enough for for enough gags to land and it's not or it's not bad enough i agree mm. with you what it is is a lot of people having there's that great line in uh, the commitments where he says that people playing jazz have more fun than people listening to it yes and and there's kind of an element of this about this film that i think in that everybody is having the time of their lives you know and not just the actors like clearly you know the special effects guys are having the best time and it's kind of joyful to watch from that point of view but it doesn't necessarily correlate to how fun it is to actually watch jenster yeah no i'd agree with that i mean i i have to say i was thinking as i was watching it last night but I did actually find it, in light of obviously current events, like world events at the moment, I did actually find it quite a hard watch. And I've almost felt a bit silly for that. But I just, I don't know, I think it just took my mind to places that I didn't want my mind to go mm. to, if you see what I mean. Because obviously it's supposed to be about escapism, and whatever. And I have to say I didn't find it very funny at all. The only time I laughed out loud was at the end when Tom Jones had a little bird on him, like a bird of prey on him, like, do, 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 that's the only thing. An hour and a half of that, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so it didn't didn't do it for me. This is one of the few occasions in the weekend that I didn't spend my time consuming something, you know, about what's going on in Ukraine. Because death here is so omnipresent and, and silly and, you know, over the top when Michael J. Fox sort of dies holding a hand and you realise because she's got the hand. So I, it, to me, it's just, it's not death, is it? It's not about death. It's not about war. It's just fun camp stuff. I see no difference to watching this, to watching The Blob in that sense. Or The Swarm, for that matter. Let's talk about the aliens briefly. I think the aliens are great, but would have been greater if we'd seen less of them. Um... I don't. I have a thing about eyes, and I don't like their eyes. To be honest, <laughs> I really don't enjoy their eyes. So yes, I agree. It would have been good if we'd seen. Well, I have a them. thing about yeah. eyes. It's a very interesting statement, Hannah. I might have to pick you up on this one a bit. I have later. A thing about eyes as well, Hannah. Um, but I don't know. I can't think 
immediately can't recall like what their eyes were like that would make I don't they were fucking I... disgusting Chet. they made me do a little bit of like am I gonna be sick thinking oh that's about funny because I am usually a bit thingy about eyes as well no it didn't uh I yeah I didn't I didn't really like the look of them very much so I agree I wouldn't but not because of their eyes weirdly mm. what I mean is the first time that there's yodeling and one of their brains explodes yeah that's it's, not nice it's I, I think it, but it's funny it's very yes. schlocky it's funny but yeah. I feel like you saw it what however many a hundred times maybe it's just like okay it over egg stuff for me which is classic Burton but you know I just felt it was a bit much I think it could have been an hour and 20 minutes and that would have been fine and I what, like was... fifty of them being Tom Jones in the desert dancing with the bird Basically, of prey on his arm? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty There's much, a deer yeah. as well. There's a deer with a deer. him, <laughs> and it's got like the little velvety antlers. Oh, it's amazing! It's the greatest scene in cinema history. I love it. <laughs> Why isn't Tom Jones in more films? Just being Tom Jones, it's madness. That's the real question. Yeah, yeah, and at the time he was in a very lucrative Vegas residency where he's earning twenty five thousand dollars a show, but just was like, "Fuck it, I'm Tom Jones. I'm going to be Tom Jones in a film about aliens." Amazing. I guess the other question is rated or dated. I don't think it was ever rated particularly, was it? Uh, it's a very personal question, Jen. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's dated, but I didn't enjoy it. Okay, Hannah. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, again, and I've say, I say it every time, the fact that it doesn't, not that it doesn't rely on special effects, because obviously it does, but the fact that they're supposed to be a bit campy and crap, mm. like, means that they haven't really, it hasn't really aged in that I sense. I agree, the CGI yeah. still stands up because it was always meant to look a bit yeah. shonky. Yeah. And I don't think it's a bad film. If it was on and I had nothing to do, I'd probably watch it again. It's... It's entertaining enough. I like Martin Shaw a lot. Um, but rated seems a bit strong for all of that. <laughs> I'm going to say with uh, a low level rated. I'm going to say if that's possible. Gradations of rated. Are, yeah. we're, we're testing new boundaries, but I'm on board because I feel the same. And I guess for me, it's it's not rated or dated. It's frustrated because I'm like, there's a really yeah. good film that's nearly there and it's not quite there. Yeah, agreed. Whose turn is it next week? It's me, and I'm slightly worried, slightly nervous, because I'm going to pick something that is actually the favourite film of several people that I know, including Ooh. my brother. So, fuck me, I hope it stands up, or I'm going to be unpopular. Stand By Me. Oh, I love that film. Ooh. Standard Issue for all women.